This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Thanks very much for joining us for another edition of the Doctor's Lounge. Uh, the Doctor's Lounge is broadcast live on America's Web Radio on Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. and is also available on podcast uh, at the uh, iTunes uh, for the iTunes app. Um, we are proud to say we've got about 15,000 podcast downloads a month, and that is thanks to you, our loyal listeners. We are grateful for your support. Um, we ask for your continued support. Uh, please go to our website at www.d4pcfoundation.org and uh, donate generously. The, this uh, program uh, comes to you as well as all of the other activities uh, of the uh, Docs for Patient Care Foundation um, from the donated time of our, our board members members and uh, the money that it takes to keep it moving. So no donation is too small, certainly no donation uh, is too big. Uh, and we are we are grateful, uh, whatever you do, uh, to, to have you here listening to us today. So um, on the program today, you know, we're in sort of a vacuum here uh, in the in the political season because we've got so much bandwidth occupied with the presidential elections um, that uh, and and as you know, if you listen to the debates the other night, healthcare is getting zero attention. And so, you know, choice of topics coming through this electoral season is is a little bit tricky. Um, but I'm pleased to say that we've got a, a, some a lot of activity going on um, with the Docs for Patient Care Foundation. And uh, with me here to talk about it is our fearless, peerless leader, our president of the board, uh, Dr. Lee Gross. Lee, thanks for coming on, on uh, at this uh, at that time today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Appreciate it. Appreciate all the work you're doing on the show. You and Helen are. Uh doing an absolutely amazing job, and uh, the Docs for Patient Care Foundation certainly appreciates your efforts. Well, you know, we, we do what we can do. It's, uh, you know, we're not professionals at this whole broadcasting thing or this foundation thing, as you know, and so we try to, we try to get through as best we can. So I think we were talking before we went on the air here, Lee. We've got all sorts of neat stuff going on. I think you want to talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, the, the, your biggest area of expertise, uh, which is the, uh, the direct primary care model, which we've talked about this show at length on numerous occasions. Uh, but I'm going to give you the microphone here for a few minutes to say what you want to say about that, and then we're going to go into some really neat stuff that's coming up very soon uh, here within just a couple of weeks in October uh, to really give this concept of direct primary care a bit more life. Okay, thanks, Mike. So uh, I, I, again, appreciate the, all the uh, efforts you guys have made towards uh, educating about direct primary care, uh, and we've been operating direct primary care uh, practice down in southwest Florida called Epiphany Health. Uh, ever since about 2010, when we, in fact, did have our epiphany. And our epiphany was, you know, why are we insuring primary care? Why, why are we taking the least effective uh, tool of, of health insurance uh, and using that to process the most basic aspect of health care delivery, which is primary care? It makes absolutely no sense. Uh, and the amount of resources that we, that we dedicated to processing these, these claims, which to the insurance companies and third-party administrators, basically are nuisance claims. Um, you know, we're burning so much bandwidth in order to do that. Uh, but when we pull away primary care from that, that tremendously clumsy system, 
it becomes very efficient and, and extraordinarily powerful. Uh, and so we are in southwest Florida and are seeing patients coming from, from all over the state of Florida for primary care. Uh, you know, so we're not the Mayo Clinic, we're not Cleveland Clinic, but they're driving past the Cleveland Clinic two and a half, three hours away to get care in, in my tiny little community. Um, and so I'm seeing patients from Miami, I'm seeing patients from Orlando, uh, and currently we're in the process of, of uh, coordinating uh, care from the patient from the Caribbean. So this is a, an extraordinarily powerful platform to provide affordable care. Uh, and what we're seeing is this, right now we're really reaching uh, the folks that were completely missed by the Affordable Care Act, the folks that have fallen through the cracks, uh, these middle-class folks that have basically now been completely priced out of the health insurance market, uh, or the folks that have the uh, the ACA-compliant uh, insurance plans that just don't cover much of anything but still need medical care. So uh, it's amazing the, the, the way that uh, that people are finding us. We're, we're pretty excited about it. Just uh, a couple weeks ago, um, I was contacted by uh, one of the senior policy advisors to the House Budget Committee, uh, and we had a, a, a brief conversation, and uh, that led to a, a one-hour impromptu briefing of all the health aides or all the health policy advisors to the House Budget Committee. Uh, and so uh, they want me to come up to Washington, D.C. after the election to testify before the House Budget Committee, so we'll see if we can't uh, work out the details, but they wanted it after the election so that people paid attention to what we were saying. Oh, I didn't even realize that part. So, yeah, that if you were to try to do it now, yeah, it would get swallowed up in all of the other stuff that's going on. But, yeah, there will be sort of a relative calm um, before the new administration has a chance to, to really, uh, you know, get its feet on the ground, whoever gets elected. And so, yeah, you may have a real uh, patch of clear air to uh, to get your message out. But, and this is a big deal. I mean, this is this is testimony before the United States Congress on this concept of direct primary care. Um, why don't you, Lee, just give just a quick um, uh, outline of how that structure works, just in case anybody who's listening here, because we don't want them to confuse this with concierge care or any of that stuff. So can you give a thumbnail of just exactly how that works? Sure. Uh, basically, what we do is we charge a flat, mon- uh, flat monthly membership fee for what we consider to be essentially uh, basic primary care services. Our practice charges $60 a month for an adult. We charge $25 a month for one child and $10 a month for each additional child. And after that, we don't charge anything for any services that we provide in our office. So if I can do an EKG or a halter monitor or take off a skin cancer, uh, I will do that at no additional charge. Uh, so as an example, I had a patient that uh, was quoted uh, about $3,000 to have a Mohs surgery uh, a complicated uh, skin surgery to remove a, a skin cancer off of his forearm, and I was able to do that in my office at no additional charge, and we paid the pathologist $60 to tell us uh, that we, in fact, didn't get it all. Uh, and so those are the types of savings that we see every day. Last, uh, One of the interesting things is to get services outside of our offices. I then reach out to uh, labs and imaging centers and offer to purchase uh, these services from them on a wholesale basis and then pass the savings along to my patients. So not uncommon for me to get an MRI for $200 or a CAT scan for 175 and I can go to one of the national labs, and instead of paying $2,000 for your labs, you're going to pay $90 through us. 
So they'll actually. Uh, so I was wondering about that. I've always meant to ask you about that, Lee. So even national lab chains are talking to one doctor who comes and says, "Let's talk about a cash price." Yeah, and it's uh, they're they're doing this across the country now. Uh, they're they're pretty open to working with us, but you know our initial conversations were fairly simple. Uh, I can send them five hundred separate cash paying patients and they can try to bill each and every one of them individually and try to collect from them or have the patients come with their high deductible plans and then the, the companies have to bill the, the insurance companies and then they have to then find out what the deductibles were and then chase the patients down for payments or I can collect the money from the patient at the time I give them the, the lab requisition and the lab can send me one bill for 500 patients uh, and so it's a it's a no-brainer conversation uh, and again, we're we're seeing ninety to ninety five percent discounts on on the lab services that we get, and and I'm I'm no longer unique uh, in this, and, and people are seeing this all over the country. But the unique part about getting, or the unique part about working with these national organizations is, you know, I can have a patient that's across the state that can get the blood drawn and then come and see me and review it, uh, and so they don't. It, it allows us to do a little bit of sort of regional medical tourism. Oh, that's pretty sweet. I didn't even realize you were able to – I didn't know you were doing this with, with national chains. That's a huge deal. What do you do um, – and, and in all fairness, this is an unscripted question for, for Lee here, but what what, uh, what do they do about prescriptions? Yeah, so, again, we, we do encourage the patients to have insurance. They have to have insurance by law or be penalized. Uh, some insurance plans cover the medications, but if the patient has no drug coverage – uh, there are some great discount programs out there that are amazing. Uh, the one that comes to the top of my mind is called Good RX. Right, right. Uh, we use them. And, and Good RX basically, it, you have an app and you can search for your medication and it'll shop it around all the pharmacies and then give you a discount code. Right. Uh, and it's not uncommon for us to see a hundred dollar prescription come down to fifteen dollars. Gotcha. Uh, and that's and that's true of a patient that has health insurance too. You know, so I'll get a phone call from, from a patient saying, you know, we've got to change my antidepressant. It, it just went up to $100 on my insurance plan because it's now forced here. And right. I said, well, why are you paying $100? It's only $15 if you pay cash for it. And, and we see that quite frequently where patients will pay a lot more because they've used their insurance. Oh, yeah. that's I, I'm doing a little research for an editorial I'm writing and discovered that, that uh, often the copay is higher than the cash price of the drug. Insane. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, and, it, and, you know, if you go to a pharmacy, you know, let's say I give you a prescription for uh, a medication that's $2, and you pull out your insurance card and your copay is $10, you're going to pay $10 for a $2 prescription because that's your copay, and you pull out your insurance, and that's the contracted rate. Yeah, it, it's it's crazy. And, and, and there's even – I was researching the um, this whole thing with the EpiPen, and apparently, you know, there's such – there's competition among – drug manufacturers to get on formularies so they're actually their their customer becomes the pharmacy benefit manager programs rather than the patient and well that, the epipen i'm sorry to interrupt yeah, Go ahead. no no that, that was just going to say that the in the case of the epipen there are often a, a huge amount of money the difference between what they charge the patient and what the drug actually costs is money that goes back to the pbm so you have pharmacies kind of rebating Money back to the uh, to the to pharmacy benefits programs. It's crazy, right? Right, and you know to to complicate the EpiPen even more is that they they sought legislation in 2013 that basically put the EpiPen in every single school in the United States. Yes, and said that that you needed to have two EpiPens. 
around, which is why EpiPens sell for $600 in a two-pack instead of $300 in a one. Right, but we dig, but we digress. <laughs> we that's okay. We're allowed to digress. This is this is our show, and we could do we can do anything we want. So uh, we actually have only a minute left in the first segment, Lee. So I we could why don't we just give everybody a little teaser about the program in Dallas, and then we can go into it in depth in the next segment. Excellent. So October fourteenth and fifteenth, we'll be putting on a, a direct primary care conference, a two day conference in Dallas. Uh, inviting physicians from all over the country to learn from a, a faculty of experts uh, that are practicing primary or direct primary care. And uh, this conference was sponsored um, by a generous grant from the Physicians Foundation with uh, generous support from the Texas Medical Association. That's okay. So we're gonna we're gonna give this uh, just a couple of more seconds, and I think uh, we're just gonna go. We'll go straight to break here. Um, you are listening to the Doctors Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Obamacare is failing, but in order to get back on the right track with health policy, people need to be informed. Obamacarewatch.org is your resource to understand what's happening with this law and what you can do to stay active, stay informed, and make positive change happen. Obamacarewatch.org. Visit us now. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak, with guest Dr. Lee Gross from Florida talking to us uh, about direct primary care and some of the neat stuff that we're doing uh, in the Doctor for Patient Care Foundation. So, Lee, we were talking uh, before the break. Um, about direct primary care and, and a very um, interesting event, very exciting event that's coming up in Dallas on the 14th and 15th of October. So getting barely a couple of weeks away. Uh, so Lee, why don't let's, I'm going to let you lead off and let's just sort of talk about what's going to be in that program and why, you know, any, any primary care doc or any doc in the sound of our voice ought to consider coming. Uh, definitely worth your time, not only for the expenses of getting there, but it, you know, to the doc, the big thing is that it's worth your time out of the office to uh, come to a meeting like this. Yeah, so as I was saying before the break, uh, we reached out to the, uh, physician, the Physicians Foundation and sought a grant from them to help us put on a, a conference on direct primary care. Uh, and they awarded us a, a, a generous grant that will basically allow us to put on this conference for, for free um, for, the, for the attendees. So there's the registration fee that we charge uh, is going to be refunded at the door for these folks. So 
the conference is going to give uh, nearly 12 hours of continuing education credit uh, partnered through the Texas Medical Association, uh, who's helping us coordinate the event. And the Doctors for Patient Care Foundation will be uh, will be hosting this, and we're responsible for the entire content of, of this program. The intent of this was to get uh, to have a program where people that already knew about direct primary care uh, knew what it was about and had interest in it, but just really needed to understand how to do it themselves. And so the, the name of our conference is Direct Primary Care Nuts and Bolts to 2.0. And the point of this is you could come in as a newbie, and or you could come in already in practice and learn from people that are also doing it. Uh, and just to, to give you a sense uh, for the interest in this, we've already had 200 registrations from 32 different states, including as far away as Hawaii. Uh, so this is going to be an extraordinarily well-attended event with uh, faculty uh, that have been doing this for a collective decades uh, and some, some really excellent uh, uh, keynote speakers. Well, it's going to be a great program. I think uh, you and Hal are going to lead off here. This thing is Friday, October 14th, starts you know, early in the morning like it's supposed to. Um, so you guys are going to make some brief remarks, and then uh, uh, Tom Garcia from uh, TMA is going to make some remarks. And then we've got uh, uh, Ryan uh, Newhoffel who's going to talk about um, the appeal of uh, direct primary care. Um, I, I don't know as much about Ryan as I should. Can you add something to that? Yeah, Dr. Newhoffel's been doing this for, for quite a while. Uh, he is one of the better-known uh, direct primary care advocates out there. He does a lot of work with the American Academy of Family Physicians. He's on uh, a lot of their, their planning uh, planning committees uh, and, and working really hard to, to get the message out. He does a lot of writing on this topic. He does uh, blogs on direct primary care. So he's probably one of the most recognized people uh, in, in the field. So I think there's definitely going to be excitement. He's sort of got some star quality, uh, and he loves to put out viral videos. <laughs> so, in fact, he, he his latest viral video was a uh, was a hack on the EpiPen for about twenty dollars. Okay, uh, well, that was what we were talking about last segment. Yeah, that's a, that's the thing about the EpiPen. It's got about five dollars worth of medicine in it and about twenty dollars worth of delivery uh, mechanism and. Uh, and somehow they figure out how to charge $600 for it. So anyhow, so after Ryan so comes – go ahead. You go ahead. Yeah, so we're doing this in panels. Uh, we're usually doing it in panels of two or three physicians so we can sort of all play off of each other. Uh, and then every panel is, is then followed with a, with a moderated Q&A with the audience. So there's so much interaction here uh, that people can learn as much as they can. So I'm going to be on the stage with Dr. Newhoffel. Uh I'm going to talk about hybrid practices where – where, where uh, some part of your practice you actually take insurance and some part you take cash and sort of comparing and contrasting those with a standard concierge relationship so people, uh, that the concierge sort of muddy, gets muddied in here and I think we need in the industry a little bit better clarity because the concierge has a, uh, a connotation to it that, that people just, uh, it's an elitist type uh Interesting oh, yeah. people get when, get when they hear that, and, and it immediately turns people off, especially lawmakers. Oh yeah. Uh, then on that on that stage with us is going to be uh, uh, Josh Umber of Atlas MD from Wichita, Kansas. Uh, if you've done any research at all in a direct primary care, you certainly run across Josh's name. 
Uh, he is all over the country uh, and all over uh, television and radio. Uh, so it's it's hard to miss Josh. Uh, uh, I think he actually even ran for he ran for lieutenant governor of the state of Kansas. Uh, but I didn't know that. He, he has. Uh, he has a just a brilliant mind on how this works, and and uh, he's probably one of the biggest cheerleaders in the country on this. And and he runs uh, Facebook groups and and uh, and helps in any way he can. So uh, then the last person on this panel is a, a good friend of mine that actually went to, to a medical school with Chad Savage. He's uh, uh, relatively new in the direct primary care field, so he comes at it from the from the newbie perspective, but. Uh, he's up in uh, in Brighton, Michigan, uh, working very closely with one of our friends up there, Senator Pat Colbeck, getting some legislation uh, through, working on some Medicaid pilot programs up there with them, helping draft some of that stuff. So uh, we're excited to get the whole crew back together, and this should be a good start-off platform. Just to, This is going to be your 35,000-foot view because on day number two, we're going to break out into breakout sessions and really get, get uh, into the, the dirt of this stuff. That sounds good. So we're going to have – I had my microphone down here so I didn't get in your way. Um, so yeah, the first panel is going to be awesome. I think that's going to really set the meeting uh, off on a, on a good note. Uh, and then uh, the number two panel, it looks like we're going to have two folks and, and have our own Dick Armstrong moderating yet again. Um, but, uh, yeah, why don't you tell them about uh, Phil Eskew and uh, Jay Keese? Yeah, so unfortunately, Dick, we had a, a change in the schedule there. Dick's not going to be able to, to make it there. Uh, but we are having our Ori Hempel uh, oh, that's board right. member. We did just uh, decide that, be, didn't we? <laughs> yes, that's all right. Yeah. These, th- these things kind of jumble together. Oh, yes. So, so Phil Eskew is a, uh, a DO slash JD uh, slash MBA. He has a lot of alphabet soup after his name. He's an attorney and physician and probably... Uh, one of the best resources in the country for legal counseling uh, on startup practices and, com- and compliance so that you don't get yourself into trouble. Uh, and he has, he gives away all of his advice for free. He runs his own uh, web blog uh, with pretty much every legal question you want. He gives guidance on states that are trying to uh, pass legislation for direct primary care to help pr- protect it. Uh, and he works very closely with Jay Kesey, who is the uh, the coordinator of the uh, Direct Primary Care Coalition in, coalition in Washington D.C. Uh, and he, he's the director of that organization. Does a lot of lobbying work up there. Uh, and he and Phil work very closely together. And they are going to give us just an incredible uh, update on what's happening at the various state levels legislatively. Uh, what's happening at the federal level in terms of tax treatments, uh, whether you can use health savings accounts for, to pay for this or uh, what, you know, how the IRS is going to determine this stuff. So they're really going to give us some great advice to keep folks uh, uh, out of trouble. And on the day number two, uh, Phil's going to come back again and, and uh, give one-on-one and, and you'll get some great legal advice. So you know, bring your legal questions because he's more than happy to give away his advice for free. Outstanding. And then lunchtime... Uh, we're going to have lunchtime will yeah, be one of my favorite philosophers about what's wrong with the healthcare system, David Goldhill, whom I quote constantly. Yeah, David Goldhill, um, if you haven't read his book, Catastrophic Care, uh, Why Everything We Think About Healthcare is Wrong, uh, it is just an incredible uh, uh, view of healthcare from 
the standpoint of a business person and, and you know how a business uh, treats its customers versus how uh, the healthcare system treats its patients and 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 he's going to give us a, an excellent keynote speech uh, over over the, the lunch hour. Uh, really excited to to hear him again. Um, but um, the neat thing about about David is that. Uh, and I didn't say he's the uh, CEO of the, the uh, game show network, cable, the cable television network. Um, and he brings a very nonpartisan uh, approach to this, you know, so it doesn't matter whether you're listening to him and, you know, at the Heritage Foundation or whether you're listening to him on MSNBC, he's going to tell you the same story and, and the message is very well received. Uh, so we're well, excited to, it's, to have him. One of the most interesting things I think about his outlook is that after you you hear all this st- stuff that looks like it's coming from the totally you know anti big government perspective, he turns around and says that he would support single payer. Yeah, that he would support single payer, but there's a caveat, right, Lee? Provided. That single payer is the patient. <laughs> that, that, well, that the single payer is the patient. Or he even says government single payer is fine as long as the scope is narrow. Uh, that that it's not single payer from cradle to grave. It's single payer for the God forbid events. It's single payer for the trauma and the cancer and the big bills. You leave everything else out and make the patient the single payer for everything else. So um, mm-hmm. it, it, it's a very interesting perspective that uh, that he brings to it. So um, yeah. we're coming up on uh, on two minutes left in the segment. So I think we probably ought to spend the time we got left talking about um, State Policy Network, which is a meeting that's coming up here just in a couple of days in Nashville. Yeah, so we're putting on a, a, uh, a panel on the State Policy Network in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, that is going to be on October 5th. And this panel is, uh, if you're not familiar with State Policy Network, uh, this conference usually has about a 1,000 attendees, uh, all focusing in health policy at the various state organizations. We'll be hosting a panel uh, on certificate of need uh, laws, uh, direct primary care, and the maintenance of certification uh, issues. Uh, we have Meg Edison, uh, who's very involved in, in these, uh, particularly up in Michigan. Uh, Dr. Scherz will be uh, talking about uh, certificate of need, and I'll be talking about direct primary care. And uh, Beth Haynes of the Benjamin Rush Institute is going to be our moderator for that event. Uh, she'll be very well attended, uh, and the Doctor Patient Care Foundation is one of the main sponsors of this annual meeting. And uh, and uh, I think we should acknowledge. I think that State Policy Network has been kind enough to uh, to support uh, our presence there, which is uh, which uh, we're very grateful for that. So, um, yeah, that will be a very good meeting. This will be our second time, I think, uh, that we've had a presence at the State Policy Network meeting. So, uh, definitely looking forward to uh, seeing you guys all there. Of course, I'll be there just kind of in a supportive role, and we're going to try to get some guests. Um, lined up for interviews uh, for future Doctors Lounge shows, so um, we'll get a lot of work done there, and uh, so that's going to be a very if exciting meeting. If I could just interrupt for ten seconds here, just there do. is still space of it. There is still space available for our our Dallas conference. It's not too late to sign up, uh, and you can download the information at our website, uh, doctorpatientcarefoundation.org. Outstanding. Yes, it's never too late. You know, there's plenty of time to get plane tickets and uh, hotel accommodations. And again, you get your registration fee refunded. So you can't say that you're not going to get your money's worth here. Uh, You've been listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. We've got 30 minutes left. Stay with us. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock for Medicine on Call. On Medicine on Call, we talk about more than medicine. It's about how to take control of your mind, body, and spirit. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchek. Thanks very much for sticking with us through segment three and segment four. We were very happy to have Dr. Lee Gross with us for the first two segments to talk about all of the neat stuff that's going on, the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, specifically as it relates to direct primary care uh, with all of the busy stuff that he is doing, not only with the uh, Florida State Legislature and direct primary care in the state of Florida, but the neat stuff that's going to happen here in the near future uh, with the U.S. House of Representatives and a likely uh, slotted uh, congressional testimony for Dr. Gross. So it was very happy. Happy to have Lee on the program. I thank him for spending some time with us. Um, I think for the next couple of segments, we're going to go into a very different topic. And again, remember I told you at the top of the hour that you know finding things to talk about in an election year such as this is a challenge because as a C3, we are a by definition a nonpolitical organization, a nonpartisan organization. So if it's forbidden territory to endorse candidates or talk about candidates, um, and, and then it becomes you know difficult to try and fill that space, especially when healthcare has been conspicuously absent from the discussion. I mean, we had a debate a couple of days ago. Was healthcare even mentioned? No. Uh, you know, is there any way to to talk about the debates on a program like this when everyone else? in the media is talking about it. Um, I don't think so, at least not in a safe or a productive way. So uh, I'm going to follow Dr. Schur's lead from last week and uh, and spend a little bit of time on something that's a little bit more hardcore medical than we usually do. Uh, but we're going to talk about But it is in the news, and it is timely, and it does have sort of some non-medical implications. So stick around and give me the benefit of the doubt here, because even if you're not into the medicine per se, uh, I think you will find this very interesting. So this has to do with um, an article that was published by the New England Journal of Medicine uh, last month, August 18th roughly, was released a couple of days before that date. Uh, and it does address something in the topic of thyroid surgery. 
Uh, and this is something that is very near and dear to my heart because I've performed probably 2,500 thyroidectomies in my career. I do two or three a week. Uh, done my share this week as usual. Uh, and so it is something that's very near and dear to my heart, very crucial to my uh, career, uh, and something that I have derived a great deal of personal and professional uh, satisfaction from doing. Um, it's a very challenging operation. You've got to know your anatomy. You've got to know your physiology. Uh, I think it's one of the most elegant operations that's out there. Of course, I'm biased. Uh, and uh, and I, But I think it brings all of the skills that a surgeon has to bear uh, in order to uh, to have an outcome. So this, this article um, addresses a topic that we in the field of thyroid disorders, thyroid cancer, thyroid surgery have been very concerned about for a long time, and that is the rapidly rising incidence of thyroid cancer and the rapidly, and I mean extremely rapidly, rising volume of thyroid operations, thyroid surgery. And you might say, well, what do you care about that for? That's more volume for you. But really, we do. It, it's no, it, there's no satisfaction in, in doing a surgery if there's a better way to, to select who appropriate surgical candidates are. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to do fewer uh, thyroidectomies knowing that the people who the, that we can really identify ahead of time who it is that thyroid surgery is most appropriate. And that was the, the, the subject of this article. And it's entitled uh, Worldwide Thyroid Cancer Epidemic, the Increasing Impact of Overdiagnosis. And I, I have a few issues with that title given what's in the article. So, um, you know, it's a very interesting article that sort of creates a mathematical model of what thyroid surgery incidents uh, should have been uh, in the recent decades uh, and the actual measured incidence of thyroid surgery and the frequency of thyroid operations. And they came up with this, this, this conclusion that in the United States that maybe as many as 80% of all the thyroid cancers we operate on don't need to be operated on. Or they use the word overdiagnosis. And I have a problem with that that I'll get to. And and what is really kind of irks me about this is is how the media really covered this, you know, because the media is always looking for a, a scandal. They're always looking for a story. And so I've got a couple of clips here from um, a, a piece that NBC Nightly News ran uh, the day after this came out. So we're going to go ahead and play these uh, one at a time and just sort of give you a sense of, of how they interpreted what they heard. So here's the first one. New report claims that most cases don't need to be treated right away because they are not life-threatening. So, okay, so this is interesting. Now, here's a brand new concept, which is that you can have thyroid cancer diagnosed, but we're just going to watch it. Now, that's a new concept. I think you see that in prostate cancer some. I wish I had Hal here to check on this. They talked about it last week. I'm not a neurologist, but I think it's roughly analogous. Now, listen to the second Little sound bite. Researchers found doctors overdiagnose thyroid cancer about 80% of the time because new screening technology is picking up small growths that are slow growing and unlikely to cause symptoms or death. Okay. So, so the second clip again is saying that uh, there's this 80% factor uh, that, that we're overdiagnosing. And I, I have issues with both of those. So, but in order to adequately explain that, 
we've got to go on a little bit of a scholarly history review. And again, bear with me. This is we've got this condensed down to something that's easy to listen to and that makes sense. You don't have to be a doctor to enjoy this. Uh, this is just good kind of history, good sort of conversational stuff. So. Um, let's go back and look at the history of removing thyroids, right? It goes back to roughly 1000 AD uh, when the first recorded thyroidectomy was ever done. Uh, and as you can imagine, from what accounts we have, it was kind of a rough experience on the patient who barely survived rather than bleed to death. And so up until about 1850, from 1000 AD up until 1850 AD, Thyroid surgery was regarded as verboten. It was regarded as something that you did not undertake because your patient was was very likely to die and that uh, this was just something that, you know, unless you had a horribly desperate situation where death was likely anyway, uh, that just wasn't going to happen. So uh, then between 1850, around the time of the Civil War, up until 1950, about a 100-year span, um, there was a great deal of, of advancement made, right? The, 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 the fund of knowledge in 1850 was not good. We did not understand that if you took your thyroid out, you weren't going to have thyroid hormone. Nobody knew what thyroid hormone was. So people who survived thyroidectomy uh, became very personality changed. They became very lethargic. Their skin changed. Their hair changed. All these things that we now learn in our first year of medical school or maybe our second year of medical school um, after basic science, that, that that's what low thyroid looks like. That's what hypothyroidism looks like, and we all learn that stuff. It's the basics. Uh, but you know, in, in the mid-1800s, they didn't know the basics. They also didn't understand the little glands behind the thyroid called the parathyroids that regulate your calcium and what their role in the big picture was and how hard it was to preserve them without injury. And they didn't understand the nerves to the vocal cords. They're called the recurrent nerve were right there and the blood vessels in the area. So they didn't understand anatomy. They didn't understand physiology. And so, you know, it was luck of the draw if you survived at all. Most people either bled to death or died because their calcium levels dropped below a level that's, you know, as we say, compatible with life. Or they lost both of their vocal cord nerves and their vocal cords wouldn't open and they couldn't breathe and they died that way. So not... Uh, any scenario there that is a, a pleasant demise, to say the least. So what happens between 1850 and 1950? Well, you have all of the major figures in surgical history, you know, names that if you go to medical school, you know, Theodore Bilroth, Theodore Coker, Halstead, uh, Mayo, who, of course, went on to the Mayo Clinic, Kreil, who was founded the Cleveland Clinic, and Leahy, and the Leahy Clinic, and all of these yeah, general surgery giants all had their careers go through thyroidectomy uh, and mastering everything that had to get figured out so that by the mid-1950s, thyroidectomy was not regarded as a big deal. Now, it was still a huge incision across the neck. It was still at least a one-week stay in the hospital, if not longer. But back in those days, that kind of stuff really wasn't uh, wasn't a matter of great concern. And uh, and so thyroidectomy went from being something that you never, ever did to something that you routinely did thanks to the contributions, the legitimate contributions of these surgical giants. Then from the 1950s, things got better still because now technology starts to come into the picture. And now we get better lighting. We get brighter lights. We get hotter lights. Uh, I mean hot like intensity of light, not not thermal heat. 
uh, better optics so we can magnify, so that we can see. You could get surgical loops like I wear every day that magnify things like a pair of binoculars so that you can see what you're going and see these little arteries and little nerves a whole lot better. We uh, you know, de- developed devices like electrocautery so that we could control bleeding and keep the wound dry. Uh, sterile technique was already pretty good by the 1950s. That continued. And so the entire practice of surgery, anatomy, physiology, technology, continued to evolve so that an ever-expanding volume of surgeons were able to do thyroidectomy routinely. It wasn't just concentrated into the super-duper sub-experts. Then things continued to change through the 70s and 80s. So now through the, up through the 60s, we've got thyroid surgery and into the 70s. We've got thyroid surgery down to the point where it can be done, and it can be done routinely and safely. So now we have to pick up another historical thread and talk about the evolution of the detection of thyroid nodules, thyroid cancer, right, the indications to even do the surgery in the first place. So up until the 1970s, there was really only one way to find a thyroid nodule or a thyroid mass in a patient as that was to touch it and feel it with your hand, right? In medicine, we call that the hand scan since we have so many other scans. You know, we go back, you know, physical examination, still the most important thing. So, you know, to feel a thyroid nodule is, you know, still the mainstay of picking these things up, or it should be. But back in the 70s and 80s, up until the 60s, that was all we had. We didn't have deeper imaging techniques. So in the 70s, ultrasound comes along. Right, the ability to use, you know, harmless sound waves to image something below the skin, and then a little before after that, we started getting CAT scans. Now, CAT scans do involve radiation, of course, but give you these exquisite pictures of people's insides that weren't available any other way. At the same time, these that, that were able to image the imaging devices become more available. You know, it used to be an ultrasound was only available in a hospital. Pretty soon, you could get it in a doctor's office. What else was going on? Well, this is when malpractice suits were beginning to come along, and therefore defensive medicine was beginning to come along. And so in order to CYA, as they say, we started ordering these scans a lot, and we started ordering these ultrasounds a lot. And then what happened? We started finding a whole lot more thyroid nodules. And now this starts to get into another problem. We're getting to the end of the segment here, but... Now the problem is once you start finding thyroid nodules, what the heck do you do with them? And we'll pick that up at the beginning of the fourth segment. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. It's worth it. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Are your health insurance premiums going up? You are not alone. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org to understand why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. This is Grace Marie Turner, President of the Galen Institute. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchek. Again, thank you very much for sticking us, sticking with us all the way through the fourth segment. And we will do our best to make this worth your while, so stick around. Um, we're delighted to bring you the Doctor's Lounge. We bring you the best in healthcare policy chat radio, my partner, Dr. Schertz, and I. We've been doing this for about two and a half years now. We're delighted to have you as listeners. Uh, we hope to continue to make this something that you continue to do, continue to download our podcast, continue to listen to us on America's Web Radio on Thursday mornings, and hopefully continue to support us with small donations or large ones if you're in the mood at uh, www.d4pcfoundation.org. That's D, the numeral 4, pcfoundation.org. So we're going to finish our conversation here in the uh, in the fourth segment, uh, talking about the history of thyroid surgery, the history of thyroid cancer, and try to tie this back into this recent article by the New England Journal and subsequent zealous coverage in the mainstream media for a day or so over the potential that we either evil or incompetent take your pick doesn't matter evil or incompetent doctors are over operating on thyroid cancers. And, uh, you know, we need to put this stuff in perspective, which is what I'm trying to do with all of this history, because, you know, if you don't understand the history of how you get to a certain place, whether it's medicine or something else, you're not going to understand where the future is going or how to interpret what's going on in the present day. So we're going through this whole thing. So we're talking in the 70s and 80s. We're talking about the advent of imaging, such as ultrasound and CAT scans, um, the relative increasing availability of those scans. And the effect that that has on how many thyroid nodules we find and feel the need to take out. So we were talking about the rise of malpractice suits in the 70s and 80s, the fact that we were then forced into a defensive mode with how we worked up patients as opposed to a sort of an unbiased sort of middle of the road, what's best for the patient kind of an approach. We were forced to get more studies. We continue to do that in the present day, unfortunately. And, uh, and and then we started – there's two other things you need to know. The first is that thyroid nodules are extremely common. If you measure the incidence of thyroid nodules, how many are out there, and you just say these are nodules that you can actually feel if you touch somebody's neck with your fingertips, it turns out that about 10% of women and 5% of men have thyroid nodules. Now, that's a lot of nodules. Now, if you expand that to more sensitive techniques such as ultrasound – or perhaps even autopsy, we find that you know by age 60, about half of us have at least one thyroid nodule. So there is a ton of thyroid nodules out there, and we've got to figure out what to do with them when we find them. We can't operate on all of them. We shouldn't operate on all of them. But we do the best we can to come up with some sort of protocol, some sort of approach to identify the high-risk nodules and get those out of folks. 
So, you know, we know that across the board, about 5% of all those nodules are malignant. So the key is find those 5%. How are you going to find those 5%? Uh, and, and this gets complicated by what we're learning at the time about treatment for other cancers. What are we learning? You know, look at lung cancer, breast cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer. What are we learning? We're learning the value of early detection. Right, We know that with mammograms. We know that with colonoscopies. We know that with rectal exams and prostate exams, although there are some issues there, and Dr. Hal talked about those last week, uh, and so no need to repeat those, and clearly he knows way, way, way more about that than I do. He's forgotten more about that than I've ever learned in the first place. But we have a trend across the cancer spectrum of aggressive screening. The problem is we sort of intuitively applied that to thyroid surgery and but but unlike cancers in some of those other places there's not this huge reserve of benign lumps and bumps that add white noise to the problem and and so you know we end up with these screening programs it turns out the more aggressively you screen for thyroid cancer <clears throat> excuse me the more you know nodules that you find that don't really need surgery but you end up operating on them anyway and, you know, we get ultrasounds showing up in other doctors' offices that, you know, OBGYNs have them, endocrinologists have them, we have them. And, uh, and then it turns out the more ultrasounds you do, the more nodules you find. And the more nodules you find, the more nodules you biopsy. The more nodules you biopsy, the more cancers you find. And the more cancers you find, the more you operate. And so the, finally, the question that you have to ask is when you operate on all these folks, are you improving outcomes? Are you improving survival? Are you improving disease-free survival in thyroid cancer patients? And it turns out that with all these extra operations we do, you know, if you look at it from the 50,000-foot level, we're not making that much of a difference. And, and so we end up with this perfect storm as we come into roughly where my career started in the mid-'90s, where we have these super-sensitive imaging studies. The technology is getting better and better. We can now identify by ultrasound nodules in the thyroid as small as a millimeter or two. We have thyroid surgery has become easier, right? We talked about that in the early history, that, that it now becomes easier and more safe and more convenient to do a thyroidectomy than it was before. And we have the rise of malpractice pushing defensive medicine and all these extra imaging studies. So now what happens? I see this in my office every single clinic day. Somebody comes in with a thyroid nodule that was discovered accidentally. We say incidentally in medicine, but accidentally because an imaging was done for something else. You got arthritis in your neck, you get an MRI looking at the seat, the cervical spine. They see a thyroid nodule. They come to me and it's off to the races. And, uh, and that's the, and that's the problem. And, and so, you know, how do we, how do we, you know, reduce those things? So, Let's, you know, let's talk about, let's go back and talk about the article itself now and talk about, you know, exactly what did these folks do to come up with this sensationalist headline? You know, I was, I was holding the journalists at NBC accountable for the misuse of the word overdiagnosis in this setting, except that I realized that the authors of the article misused the term overdiagnosis in this setting. Because when we do a needle biopsy on somebody and we find a cancer, it's a cancer. That's how it's described. That's how the pathology is classified. 
The question is, are we over-treating by operating on more of these than we should? And, you know, you can't find the answer unless you appropriately and correctly and accurately state the question. And so we have to go into this article with that in mind. So what they've done here is construct a very elegant mathematical model, and they did this for several countries, and they did it for several time spans. So they looked at the United States, Italy, France, England, and Scotland, um, the Nordic countries, South Korea, Japan, and Australia. And then for each of those countries, they stratified the incidence of, of thyroid cancer diagnoses from – uh, 1988 to 1992, 1993, 1997, 1998, 2002, and 2003 to because most people agree, and I agree, that it was when easy ultrasound came along is when the you know, detection went through the roof because everybody was getting ultrasounded. The thyroid nodules were getting found and biopsied and a fraction of those operated on. And so they created a mathematical model that said, what if ultrasound never came along? So we'll take the curve data through up through the 60s and then mathematically extrapolate that curve all the way through 2007 and use that as our comparative benchmark. Now, that's not a perfect model by any stretch of the imagination. It fails to account for, uh, let's say, you know, nuclear disasters like Chernobyl or uh, the, you know, the earthquake and, 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 uh, in Japan that caused that nuclear plant to fail about five years ago where you, know, you had spikes in incidences, true spikes of, of thyroid cancer. But I think it's probably the best model that you can come up with. And, and what they found was a significant number, you know, the, the true curve of incidents went far above the mathematically predicted curve of incidents. And uh, the, the most striking country was actually South Korea, where the thing just went sky high. And they actually measured uh, an incidence in thyroid cancer in women that was like 120 cases per 100,000 women. I mean, that's over a tenth of a percent. That's a lot of thyroid cancer cases. Uh, you know, that's probably seven or eight-fold greater than what the mathematical model would have predicted. Um, so, and, and why did that happen? Because uh, according to the authors of the paper, because South Korea had a very aggressive cancer screening program for multiple cancers, inc- including thyroid. So it seems to imply that the more you screen, the more you find – and by treating all these extra cases that you find, you're really not affecting outcomes very much. So that's, that's where the, the paper comes up with it. So if you do all the math, and this is where that 80% number came from, right? This is, I think, from this particular... Researchers found doctors overdiagnosed thyroid cancer about 80% of the time because new screening technology is picking up small growths that are slow-growing and unlikely to cause symptoms or death. Okay, so... There's that 80% number. But you got to remember that the 80% number is compared to an arbitrary mathematical model, which may or may not be accurate. You know, it assumes that, that there was no influence that would have caused the, the actual incidence of thyroid cancer to increase over time. And people have hypothesized 
ozone layers deteriorating, more radiation coming through the atmosphere. Maybe that's happening, maybe it's not. Not a lot of traction for the theory, but the bottom line is there might be actually an increase, a true, a true increase in, in frequency of thyroid cancers. The mathematical model assumes that there's not. But the problem is, is this whole overdiagnosis thing is that we're not over, we're not overdiagnosing. It's possible that we're overtreating. You know, I would have entitled, I would have titled this article, you know, research to suggest a potential method for safely reducing the number of thyroidectomies we do. Cause that's really what this is. It's not a, an epidemic of thyroid cancer like the title states. Uh, it's not overdiagnosis like the title states. Uh, but it is interesting data that might give us some clue as to how to safely reduce the number of thyroidectomies that we do. And believe me, even as a thyroid surgeon, nothing would make me happier than the ability to, to screen out folks that don't need their thyroid out and leave those folks without an operation. That would be great. And, and I mean, this affects practice every day. I, this week, I've already seen three or four people, including one that I operated on today, that falls exactly in the category of folks that, that, these, that this research suggests that I should have left alone. So why did I operate on this patient anyway? Well, because she wanted it. And she came in with her father, who is an internist, and we discussed this New England Journal of Medicine paper, and we all agreed that the data are good, but here's the question. You know, who's going to be the first one to volunteer to let their cancer stay in their neck untreated? And I'm not sure where you're going to find those folks. Uh, we have reached the top of the hour. Thank you for listening. This has been the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.